Hi there. Today we have a special opportunity for you all. This episode features a talk by Dr. Elizabeth Andre at last year's Jaffe Network Gathering, or JNG as we like to call it. Dr. Andre is a professor of nature and culture at Northland College in Ashland, Wisconsin. Northland College has a specific focus on progressive environmentalism and sustainability, and Dr. Andre teaches courses such as winter travel and living skills and interpretation of the Apostle Lands. In this keynote address, she talks about diversity in the outdoor education field and shares findings from her work. Her teachings about privilege and diversity inform how we are hoping to expand our Jaffe work to be genuinely inclusive. We are so grateful for her support of Jaffe and hope to build on the themes in her presentation this year at Jaffe Network Gathering. We hope you enjoyed listening as Dr. Andre speaks at last year's Network Gathering. And I was reading some of the bios of the different presenters this morning, and I was thinking, I don't, <laughs> I don't feel like I have much to share with you all. It seems like you have such an amazing wealth of knowledge and expertise, and, and so I'm really excited to have a conversation, uh, a two-way conversation here. But to start out with, a, a few thoughts. I first started thinking about uh, what I'm going to discuss today in February of 2017, when I was asked to give a keynote at a student-run outdoor educators conference, and I knew that the reason they'd asked me to give the keynote is because um, I, you know, I give keynotes a fair bit, and usually they're super kind of lighthearted and fun. I show a bunch of uh, photos from different dog sled expeditions that I've been on, and I you know, draw together some, uh, or pull out some interesting thoughts and lessons from it, but really it's a lot of fun photos of dogs doing funny things, and you know, people like it. Um, so I was, <laughs> I was getting ready for my kind of typical, you know, here's where the polar bear came into our camp, you know, type of, type presentation, but I just wasn't feeling it at all. It was right after the 2016 election, and I was you know, watching the news and kind of having a hard time pulling myself away from it, and I was seeing the increased level of intolerance on display and uh, the lack of civility, and I just was having a hard time putting together my funny stories about dog sledding. Uh, so I started to think, uh, what can outdoor education do to help kind of repair the, the rift, um, to get people to tolerate each other and to go beyond tolerate but to be civil and to maybe eventually respect and love each other across divides. Uh, can outdoor education do that? And what would that look like? And, and I, I thought, well, yes, of course we can. Because if, if you think about, and I know this is something that you all feel, which is why you're involved in outdoor and non-formal education, if you think about the types of experiences that you had in the outdoors, you probably felt deep connections with the other people who were on those experiences with you, and, and perhaps that experience is what led you to want to create that type of experience for other people. Um, so outdoor education can help provide that kind of you know, emotional connection between people, but on the same time, we often fail to do that. I, I've been in the profession now for 20 years or more, and for the entire 20 years that I've been there, we keep talking about how we need to make our groups more diverse, and we need to um, not just be taking people who are very like-minded out into the outdoors together, but how do we make this a, a broader conversation, a bigger boat? We've been talking about that for 20 years, and we haven't really made much progress on that. Um, and then I, I was thinking about a study that some colleagues of mine uh, were in the process of doing, it's about to be published, where they surveyed 
the membership of the Association of Outdoor Rec and Ed. So there's 700 people that they surveyed who run all these outdoor programs, and they asked them about their kind of personal feelings of the importance of diversity and inclusion, but then also what were they doing about that? Were they leading staff trainings? Were they um, creating more diverse groups? You know, what were they doing? And, and what the study found was that, not surprisingly, everybody felt like it was really important. Um, but they weren't doing anything about it. Or if they were doing something, they didn't feel like it was very effective. And uh, so it, it brought me back to, well, what, what can we do? Outdoor education has the possibility to create those connections, as I mentioned. There was a, an article in the Washington Post earlier this year about uh, Derek Black, who uh, was kind of the heir apparent of the white nationalist movement, and uh, his David Duke is his, grand, his godfather, rather, and, uh, and he went to a, a private liberal arts college in Florida, uh, which I thought was an interesting choice, uh, but he went to a the liberal arts college uh, being an interesting choice because if, uh, it seemed to me that private liberal arts colleges are really good at kind of opening people's uh, perspective to the world. And so if, to go to a private liberal arts college um, because in Derek's black case he wanted to study medieval history seemed like an interesting choice to me. He, he wanted to go there because he wanted kind of evidence and proof of the superiority of the white race. And he thought studying um, medieval history would allow him to have more information about um, you know, why white people were so great. <laughs> so he went to this small liberal arts college, and he ended up uh, becoming really good friends with a Jewish person who invited him to some Shabbat dinners that would happen every week. And uh, so he became really great friends with all of this. It was a very diverse group of people who would go to these dinners. And, uh, and he, his kind of, identity as this white nationalist leader was not known by any of the people who were at those dinners. Uh, but eventually someone you know, using the internet was like, wow, look at this, uh, this guy who comes to our Shabbat dinners is a white nationalist. And so then he uh, was kind of ostracized from the group, but he, uh, he, he was invited back by someone. When, and when he came back to the Shabbat dinners, a lot of people stopped coming because they didn't want to be at that dinner with him. Um, but slowly people started to come back to the Shabbat dinners. And, and those friendships that he developed um, started to undermine his ability to hate people. And now he has kind of denounced the movement and he's working <laughs> to kind of repair some of the damage that he had created. And, uh, and so reading that story made me think, okay, so it is the power of connections with people that can help us um, bridge these divides, but, but it doesn't just naturally happen. It doesn't, it doesn't just by you know, creating a diverse group and going out in the woods together, it doesn't naturally happen. There was a study in 2014 of a Knowles group, a National Outdoor Leadership School group, and they had a purposely diverse group of students who went out on this experience, and the researchers were hoping to find that after being out in the woods together that people were less prejudiced to each other, that they understood each other more, but what they found was the opposite. Um, there was more distrust, um, less tolerance of each other. Uh, people felt that there was kind of forced diversity. Um, they had a lot of conflict. The diverse group had had more conflict than they might have had if they were all similar to each other. And, and so um, I thought, okay, so outdoor can actually make things worse sometimes too. So, uh, so what can we do to, um, to make things better and not worse? But it needs, people need to have training, Instructors need to have training about how to facilitate difficult conversations. That's super scary. Even professionals who teach for a living have a really hard time dealing with conflict in the classroom. 
Um, so is it reasonable that as outdoor professionals, we can expect 21-year-olds you know, who are leading our trips or leading our experiences to have all of the skills to not only keep people safe out there from dying, but um, to help them understand each other, to have difficult conversations. And, um, and I thought maybe this is, this is a more difficult thing than just get people outside together and they're going to start to like each other. So I thought, well, is there a framework that we can think about that helps us figure out where are we stopping in our, in our decision to help? And I, I thought about a, a psychologist from the 1970s, Latine and Darley, and they had this five-step model of helping. And we talk about it a lot in kind of outdoor emergencies, like if you see someone drowning, um, what it is that allows you to decide to help. And I thought this framework here can help us think about where are we falling short in our um, kind of quest to help with this particular situation. So the five steps, five things have to happen in order for you to decide to help. The first thing is you have to notice it. Um, so this, uh, this seems really straightforward, but you know, think about it to the person drowning. You know, if you don't see the person fall off the pier, you clearly can't help. So the first thing is you have to notice it. But with something like uh, intolerance or injustice or um, institutionalized racism, prejudice, if, if you have privilege there, sometimes you don't notice that it's even a problem, so it's not a problem for you. So some of us fall off the kind of five-step program at step one of not noticing. It doesn't have any salience to our lives. Um, the, the second step is that you have to interpret it as an emergency. And so going back to the person falling off the pier, they fall off the pier and you think, oh, they're just swimming. Um, they were too hot. They're cooling down. You don't think it's an emergency. You don't think that you need to help. Um, and I think emergencies are often ambiguous. It's not as clear as someone falling off a pier. Um, sometimes you don't, um, perhaps you're so busy with your other uh, things in your life, you don't recognize that this is an emergency, or perhaps you're looking to social cues from other people and other people don't seem like they perceive it as an emergency, and so then you figure, well, it must be okay. Uh, and also people don't want to overreact and then be embarrassed. So going back to the person falling off the pier, if you're like, oh my gosh, and you like, you know, call 911 and you jump in, like, I was just going for a swim, that's embarrassing. And sometimes we feel that same reluctance to act because um, we're not sure that it's actually an emergency and, and we're not sure that people want our help um, there. So the third step is that you have to feel a personal responsibility to act. So you know, the person falls off the pier, you're not a lifeguard, um, perhaps you're like, well, this isn't my job, you know, it's too bad that they're drowning, but I don't have a personal responsibility to act here. Um, this can happen when we don't have a sense of we-ness with the person who is the victim. And that can be especially hard with social justice because we don't um, necessarily feel identification with the people who are um, not privileged in these situations. And, uh, and I think that this is kind of innate in us as humans. There's a study that I, I heard of, which I, it was super disturbing to me. They, they did a study with pre-verbal children, small children, and they showed them a puppet show of a, a puppet that was trying to get into a box. And the puppet was having a hard time getting into the box. And so they were trying to see, did the children identify with the puppet, feel empathy, want to help the puppet get into the box? And they had two different groups. They had the group where they created we-ness, with between the puppet and the child, and they did this by having the child uh, get to choose some cereal, and the puppet chose the same kind of cereal. So that basic, very minimal sameness, they liked the same kind of cereal. The kid was more likely to want to help the puppet get into the box, 
But if the puppet shows a different type of cereal that the kid didn't like, the kid actually took joy in the puppet's pain of not being able to get into that box. And so it's like a very kind of innate part of us as humans that we care for people who are like us and we tend to not care for people who are not like us. So it's something that we need to learn and, uh, and we can learn clearly to care for people who are not like us, but it's, it's something that, um, that we have to be um, kind of taught. And that's something, again, that outdoor education can do, but it's got to do it well, uh, as we see from that Knowles study. So first, you have to notice it. Second, you have to interpret it as an emergency. Third, you have to feel a personable, personal responsibility to act. And then fourth, you have to know what to do. So even if you see the person fall off the pier, you recognize they're drowning, you know it's an emergency, and you know that you should be helping. If you can't swim, and you don't have anything to throw to them, it may be that you decide you can't help because you just don't know what to do. And I think for us with social justice and with promoting tolerance, a lot of us have a lack of information about how to help. Um, and we also perceive that we have a lack of skills in, in how to help as well. And then the fifth thing is you have to decide to act. So even if you see it, you know it's an emergency, you know you have a responsibility, and you know you have the skills, you still have to decide to act. And if you decide to not act for some reason, uh, perhaps because you have too many other things that you're busy working on, or um, you don't want to expose yourself to negative emotions, and it's too painful for you to, to actually be thinking about this other person's pain, um, if you decide not to act, what's interesting to me is that you can retrospectively go back to step three and change your mind about it. So step three is, do you have a personal responsibility to act? So even if you originally thought you did, if you either don't have the skills or you decide not to act, you actually can kind of retrospectively decide it's not your responsibility. And then that relieves you of the guilt of not actually doing anything. Um, and, uh, and then we use these kind of emotional management strategies to make us feel better about that. Um, anyway, so that's, that's the five-step model, and so I started to think about it with outdoor education and with people um, who are running outdoor programs. There's, there's so many different challenges and things you have to think about, um, and when you start to talk to people about, you know, are, are you doing something to promote diversity, are you doing something to promote kind of civility and, um, and you know, bridging these gaps, when you talk to people and you hear why they are or why they are not, using this five-step model, you can start to see where they fall off that progression. Um, perhaps they don't notice it, perhaps they don't actually think there's a problem, um, perhaps they um, don't feel that they know what to do, or perhaps they just don't feel like they have time. So somewhere along there they're falling off, but I think um, having that as a model helps us know how to move forward. It, it tells us where it is that we're falling short and then how to, to um, overcome our kind of inhibitions there and, and start to help. Um, so uh, anyway, I, I, uh, I guess I'm probably out of time. I haven't been watching, watching the clock. You're okay. Um, okay, great. Uh, but anyway, so I, uh, I, I'm excited to be here for this week because I think that, um, that you all through conversations can help me create a larger toolbox of, of how to help. I mean, I have, I have a big list of resources and if, if any of you would like them. You know, there's things from the Southern Poverty Law Center about addressing everyday bigotry. Um, there, Tufts University put together a big handbook where all the different faculty who have experience addressing difficult uh, topics in the classroom wrote individual essays about how to do that. Um, there's a, a bunch of activities from the DIVE, which is Diversity and Inclusion Adventure Experience in North Carolina State, where they take uh, people from very diverse backgrounds and all um, 
all different ways of imagining diversity uh, on a backpacking trip together, along with a curriculum where they work together to start to understand each other better. Um, so there's resources from there. There's um, a professor at Wesleyan State who um, created a series of kind of role-playing exercises where people respond to overt displays of bigotry, and um, you can do that in the classroom. There's many different ways to create the norms within a group of communication and to work on um, ways to kind of respond to difficult conversations. There's all sorts of resources out there, and, and I think that um, through an experience like this where we all come together, we can share those resources, and, and so I'm, I'm excited to learn um, from you all about, I guess, just more tools for the toolkit. Um, thanks. Thank you so much for listening to Dr. Elizabeth Andre at JNG 2018, last year's Joffe Network Gathering. We hope you enjoyed learning with us, and we look forward to seeing you all at this year's Joffe Network Gathering from August 30th to September 2nd at Urban Adama and Walker Creek Ranch in Petaluma, California. More information can be found at hazone.org slash JNG. Oh.